while keeping a finger in Luke 1, would you please turn to Galatians chapter 3. Keep your place in Luke 1, that's the primary passage we'll be considering this morning. But I'd like us to look at one verse at the start of this message in Galatians 3, that verse is verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Galatians 3, verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Let's pray once more together. Father, as we come before your word, we pray that what we know not, you would teach us, what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us, for Jesus' sake, amen. We come this morning to consider in our Advent series, these four weeks of Advent we're observing as a church family, we come to consider this morning what I'm calling the gospel according to Mary. Uh, Last week, we considered the gospel according to Gabriel. This week, we look at the gospel according to Mary. Next week, the gospel according to Zechariah. And then uh, the Sunday before uh, Christmas Day, we'll look at the gospel according to the angels, as it's expressed in Luke 2. So this morning, we're looking particularly at Mary's famous hymn of praise, uh, known to church history as the Magnificat, which simply means in Latin, magnify. It's a verb, magnify, following the first line of Mary's song itself, where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And throughout church history, uh, this has been a beloved passage, and uh, among many passages in Scripture, it has enjoyed a special place in the liturgy of the church, in various denominations, in various wings of Christendom. This passage has held a special place. I just want to remind you of a comment I made last week. It's certainly true that many wings of the church today have in an inordinate way, even a blasphemous way, ascribed to Mary worship that belongs only to God. And of course, we as those who worship God and God alone should never ascribe any worship or praise to Mary. But at the same time, uh, we should not allow uh, the history of Marian devotion in the Roman Catholic Church to diminish our appreciation of this passage, because it's a glorious passage. It's a passage that should be celebrated and should be expounded, uh, hopefully, in pulpits all over the world over these coming weeks. Uh, Mary's Magnificat is introduced by Luke with a fascinating narrative prelude. So I think those verses leading up to Mary's song, verses 39 through 45, they function as a sort of prelude or an overture to the song that is to come. Uh, Luke is the only gospel writer who records uh, this delightful episode between Elizabeth and Mary, and he's also the only writer who records the Magnificat. Uh, Luke 1, verse 39, uh, we're told that Mary, uh, who is now at this time pregnant uh, with the Lord Jesus, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Her cousin Elizabeth is much older. Remember, Elizabeth was barren, and God miraculously brought about uh, the conception of a child in her old age. And she's carrying her son, whose name is to be John. He is that John the Baptist who will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
And Luke records that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, so I guess Mary entered the house or knocked on the door and announced who it was that was at the door. When Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, we read, the baby leaped in her womb for joy. That is, John, in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps for joy. And in some ways, this brief episode anticipates something of what the ministry of John the Baptist will be. So here is the first time uh, John encounters Jesus. They're both in the wombs of their mother, and even then, John leaps for joy. And it's redolent of a passage we have actually in John's gospel account in John chapter 3. There the apostle John is speaking about his own ministry, and he compares himself in reference to Jesus as like a best man at the bridegroom's wedding. And this is what John says about his ministry there in John 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. He and he alone has the bride. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. That joy that began in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, when he leapt for joy at the sound of not Jesus' voice, but the mother of Jesus' voice, it's now complete in that he with his eyes now has beheld the coming of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove and his joy as the best man of the bridegroom is complete. Well, after the baby leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, then exclaims with a loud cry, verse 42, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And in this, Elizabeth is doing nothing other uh, than imitating the angel Gabriel. Didn't we see a similar language from Gabriel last week? He acknowledges Mary as the favored one of God. So Elizabeth, an imitation of that announcement, is saying, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then Elizabeth, overwhelmed with a sense of the grace and mercy of God, says in verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. I think Elizabeth was thinking after all these years of anticipation of God's redemptive purposes, she is going to live to see the fulfillment of God's promise, and she's overwhelmed by the sense of, of grace and mercy toward her from God. She says, well, why should I be given this gift of seeing the mother of my Lord and seeing in these days the coming of the consolation of Israel, of God's anointed one? Then Elizabeth concludes by pronouncing further beatitude over Mary, saying in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Something in a sense that can be said of any Christian who believes the promises of God. Blessed is the one who believes that there will be a fulfillment of what the Lord has spoken to her. Well, now let's consider Mary's song. That's the prelude to the song. Let's consider Mary's song itself. And Mary's song basically has three parts, and these three parts will frame our consideration of her song this morning. Uh, Mary understands that God, in these events, in the virgin birth and in the coming of Jesus into the world, in these events, God is showing Himself to be powerful and to be merciful. Her song is going to meditate on these two aspects of God's character. In terms of what He's doing in these events, God is showing Himself, displaying something of His mighty power in the birth of Jesus, and He is also displaying something of His mercy toward the world. So in each of these headings, you'll see that idea of power and mercy reflected. We'll consider first 
God's power and mercy toward Mary. That's verses 46 through 49. Secondly, we'll consider God's power and mercy toward the humble, verses 50 through 53. And thirdly and finally, we'll consider God's power and mercy toward Israel. So God's power and mercy toward Mary, His power and mercy toward the humble. Thirdly and finally, God's power and mercy toward Israel. And at the end of each heading, I'll share something of some application for us as we go along. So consider with me first God's power and mercy toward Mary. This is where her thoughts immediately go as she is filled with the Spirit, and in this spontaneous way, she sort of erupts in praise to God. She considers God's power and mercy toward her individually. Notice the personal pronouns here, beginning in verse 46 of Luke 1. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. In the midst of all the many things that God is accomplishing in the birth of Jesus, some of which are cosmic in scope and will impact the whole world, the whole cosmos, even encompassing all the nations of the, of the world, we have recorded here at the start of this song a very sweet testimony of individual personal blessing from Mary. Mary is aware that the coming of the Messiah means salvation for her as an individual, salvation for her as a sinner in need of the grace of God. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, God's Son, represents a dramatic and revolutionary moment in her own life leading to her redemption. Now, I mentioned last week, this is not explicitly said in the New Testament at any point, but most scholars believe that Mary would have been about a seventh or eighth grader. She would have been ages 14, 15, uh, somewhere in there. Now, I don't think we should read a lot into that detail, especially because the Bible itself doesn't highlight that detail. I say that to say for the children among us, imagine at the age of 14 or 15 having this kind of faith in God to express the things that Mary expresses here and to have such an awareness of God's grace and mercy at that age. I say that to say no one here has to wait to come to Jesus Christ and to trust in Him. Children, you can be saved and you can have faith like Mary does in this passage. Mary magnifies the Lord and refers to God here as God, my Savior. Now that's significant. She's going to address the Lord. She doesn't refer to Him as God Almighty. She doesn't refer to Him as God the Rock or something like that. The name she gives to God in this prayer is God, my Savior. Not her parents' Savior, not Israel's Savior. God, my Savior. God has saved me. And in these events, He's accomplishing salvation for me. She perceives in these events her own personal salvation. Jesus will be uh, her son, right? But at the same time, Jesus will be her Lord and her Savior. Uh, Mary will be Jesus' mother, right? She will have that station and status in Jesus' life. But at the same time, Mary will be Jesus' disciple, and she will be a little lamb of Jesus' flock. Mary is cognizant of God's redemptive purposes through the child in her womb, redemptive purposes that will be for her individually along with the rest of the believing world. She already knows at this point, pregnant with this little boy, she already knows who her son is was going to be. Now, now, Jen and I have two children, one on the way that we anticipate God willing in a few weeks. And if, if, if Jenna and I, when we're alone together, the kids are in bed now, we'll often talk about 
our kids. Kids, when your parents go on a date or something like that, when they're not with you, they're talking about you. That's what parents do. They talk about their kids. And uh, what we've done is we've planned out our kids' entire lives. So I can tell you who Dominic is going to marry and what his major is going to be and what career he's going to have. The same would be true for Camden as well. Now, some of you are smiling and chuckling. Why is that? Well, because none of us knows what our children are going to do. None of us has control over the course of the lives that our children are going to take. But you see, Mary had some awareness of this. She knew precisely who her son was going to be. There were certain details of his life, of course, she didn't exactly understand. There were certain pieces of the puzzle she didn't have. But think about this. The angel has announced to her who her son would be. This is the anointed one. This is the promised son of David. And she could have picked up her Old Testament. She could have read in the Psalms and in the prophets and other narrative passages and read about precisely who her son would be. He would be like that light shining on the nations. He would be that cornerstone upon which the people of God would be built. She would be David's coming son who would rule and reign on his father's throne forever and ever, and of the increase of his government, there would be no end. She's not presuming on God to worship him for who her son would be because she was told in the Scriptures, in ancient promises, age-old promises, who it was that her son would be. And so she exalts the Lord because she knows who this baby is going to be and what he would do to accomplish her salvation. Mary then says in verse 48 that the Lord has looked on her humble estate. He's looked on her in her humble estate. That doesn't mean like her, God's gaze just sort of incidentally passed over Mary. The idea is he, he looked on her. He considered her. He regarded her. He had compassion on her. It's a searching look. It's a knowing look. He looked on her. He had pity on her. He regarded her. We will sing this in the language of the song, It Is Well, after our celebration of the Lord's table uh, this morning. You know that line, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. He's had regard for my estate. He's taken care. He's taken an interest in me. The Lord has looked on his humble servant. The Lord is not cold to Mary. He's not indifferent to Mary. The Lord has had compassion on her, and he has loved her and brought deliverance for her. He has looked on her humble estate. And Mary reflects a humble confidence that God looks on all those who seek him, who follow him, who fear him. Mary's testimony concludes with the words of verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God has shown himself to be powerful in Mary's case. He's shown himself to be powerful in Mary's narrative, in Mary's experience, in Mary's history, and he has shown himself to be merciful. Mary is aware in these opening lines of her song, God has had dealings with me, and in my experience, through the birth of my son and who he will be, God is displaying his power and his mercy toward me. Young, teenaged, virgin Mary. Just a quick word of application before moving on to our second point. It is in every way appropriate to dwell in this season of Advent on all the cosmic things God is doing for the world in the coming of Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. 
Uh, We should have a sense of what God is doing for the nations and what God is doing for the whole cosmos in the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus. But in the midst of all that celebration of the cosmic implications of the coming of the Son of God, don't allow your own personal narrative and experience to be lost in all of that. Take some time this Advent season and get alone with God, with a Bible, with a hymnal, and consider the implications of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus for your soul. Recognize that God just doesn't save people in mass. He comes to individual sinners. He looks on individual sinners. He has regard for individual sinners. What are the implications of the incarnation of the Son of God for your soul, my friend? And just celebrate and praise God for His grace and His power and His mercy displayed towards you, revealed towards you in the coming of the Lord Jesus. There's all sorts of things that were unique in Mary's experience, right? None of us, I mean, she's said to be blessed among women. She's the special favored one of God. None of us will ever be in exactly the same place that Mary was in, right? She, she received some special favor from God. But every single one of us here can know God as our Savior. We can know the privilege of salvation and mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that's God's power and mercy toward Mary. Consider with me, secondly, God's power and mercy toward the humble. Verses 50 to 53. Verse 50 says this, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. In verse 50, we can see that Mary's song now transcends her own subjective experience, her own narrative, to now include all those who fear the Lord throughout time, from generation to generation. And she says, God's mercy is directed to such people, to those who fear God. She's been the recipient of it, and now she's testifying all people throughout all generations. God's mercy is directed toward those who fear Him. And who are they that fear God? Well, it's not the proud, right? It's the humble. Mary says, verse 51, he has shown the strength, excuse me, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, how do we interpret these verses? What is Mary trying to convey in in this second portion of her song? I think there's two levels of meaning going on here in Mary's words. On the first plane of meaning, I think Mary has in view the proud nations and kings of the earth who have set themselves up as Israel's enemies throughout the generations of their history. So she knows now the Davidic king is coming, the promised son of David is coming, and through him, she knows God will scatter the proud. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones. So perhaps a passage like Psalm 2 is in Mary's mind. You know Psalm 2. Uh, That psalm is a messianic psalm. That's a psalm that has in view the Lord's anointed and His posture toward the proud kings and nations of the world. It's a psalm that is in every way about David's greater son who is going to come. And there we read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens 
laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. That's what's going on in the coming of Jesus. He's setting His King on Zion, His holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I believe Mary is anticipating the fulfillment of this psalm. In the coming of Jesus, God's promised one has come. The anointed one has come. God has set His King in Zion. And all those proud nations that harassed and persecuted God's people, and all the kings of the world, and all their imagined pomp and boast and fame and riches, God is going to bring all of that down. And He's going to bring everyone to bow the knee to the true King, God's anointed one, God's promised one. God has set His King on Zion, His holy hill. And I think Mary's anticipating this. At last, God's chosen one will be exalted over the kings and the nations of this world. At last, God will deal decisively with all of Israel's enemies, with the proud nations of the world. That's, I think, the first plane of meaning to these words from Mary. But then there's a second plane. Surely, Mary also has in view the spiritually proud also. God will scatter the spiritually proud. Those who do not recognize their need for God, but instead seek to live on their own stock, independent from God. And so she says, the Lord has scattered the proud, the rich He has sent away. He's rejected the proud. In the coming of Jesus, Mary anticipates that God will reject the proud, but He will receive the humble. That's the kind of Messiah He will be, and I think this is at the heart of something Luke will emphasize in his gospel. He's doing it here in Mary's song, but one of the things Luke emphasizes again and again is Jesus the Messiah is the Savior for sinners. He will not receive the spiritually proud. He will reject the proud, but He will receive the humble and contrite in spirit. So you have a passage like Luke 5, and there Jesus is in the home of Levi, and there the Pharisees are all upset because Jesus is willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners, and they try to call Him out on this. And Jesus says there in Luke chapter 5 to the Pharisees and to the scribes, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, he says, I have not come to call the righteous. He's not suggesting that the Pharisees actually are righteous. In a sense, he's saying, I've not come to call those who suppose themselves to be righteous. Those who have the spiritual pride to think they don't need a Savior, that they're morally clean enough, that they have their act together, that they have no need of me. I've come to call sinners who know that they're sick and need of a Savior. There's that song, we don't sing it, but we'll begin to sing it soon here in the new year. Come ye sinners. Maybe you know that song, maybe you don't. There's a great line in that song. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to know your need of Him. How do you qualify for Jesus' attention? How do you qualify for His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness? To know that you need it. 
to know that you're a sinner, a rebel against God in need of His saving grace and compassion towards sinners. A similar passage, I think, establishes the same point in Luke's gospel is in Luke 18, uh, verses 9 through 14. You can turn there or listen as I read. There we read, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Again, not those who actually are righteous. They trust in themselves that they are righteous, and they treat others with contempt. Verse 10 of Luke 18, this is what Jesus says. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Let me just say this, because I imagine there is one or two or three who have struggled with this as they've been in church and evaluated Christianity. If you have been in a Christian setting where people have acted superior to the people outside the church, or acted as hypocrites, as though they're the righteous ones, and they're not like other men, and they don't sin in the ways that other people do, and they take a holier-than-thou kind of posture. Listen to the words of Jesus here. Such people are not imitating the attitude of a true Christian. The attitude true Christians have is that we have no right to be in God's presence. We don't deserve His mercy. We are sinners just like the rest of mankind, and the only thing that distinguishes us in the church from those outside the church is that we have had faith in Jesus Christ, God's own Son, not that we're any better than anybody else. And Jesus makes that point here. The Pharisee says in verse 12, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, that's me and that's you, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, righteous before God, rather than the other. Now listen to these words from Jesus. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you hear the words of Mary's song in there? Jesus' words here in his own ministry merge here with what Mary announced in the Magnificat 30 to 33 years earlier. What does Mary say in our text in verse 52? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And what does Jesus say? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's the idea? God is sending His Son into the world. The Messiah has come, and He will reject the spiritually proud, but He will be responsive to the spiritually humble. God will respond in His Son to the contrite, to the poor in spirit, to those who are spiritually hungry. He feeds them with good things. Those who come to Jesus saying, I lack nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace. Jesus is responsive to such people. Jesus is altogether oriented towards such people, people who come hungry, people who come humble, people who come poor in spirit and contrite, spiritually humble before the Lord. And by the way, this is the way the Lord has always been. You know Isaiah 57, 15? It's a very good verse to memorize. 
Isaiah 57, 15, the Lord says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's where God dwells. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Where is God? Where does God dwell? He dwells in the high and holy place. And he dwells with the individual sinner who comes in contrition to him. Why? To put that person down? To ask him or her to grovel at his feet? No, the passage goes on to say to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, a similar passage, the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. Remember Mary says, the Lord looked on me. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know that passage in James, I think it's James 4, verse 6, God gives more grace, right? God resists the proud, He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God rejects the proud, He opposes the proud, He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I think it's the very next verse where Christians are exhorted to resist the devil and he will flee from you. That word resist, oppose, is antitasso. It's the same verb in both verses, which I take to mean the same posture that we as Christians, or the same action at least, we are to take towards Satan. God takes that same posture toward the proud. We're to resist Satan, to oppose Satan. God uses that same word to describe his posture toward the proud. He opposes the proud. He resists the proud, but remember, he gives grace to the humble. He receives needy sinners who come to him. He will look on the contrite and lowly in spirit. He will receive the humble. God in Christ will look upon humble sinners who know their need of him and look to him for mercy. And Mary recognizes that this is exactly what God is doing in the birth of her son, the birth of the Son of God. He will scatter the proud those who suppose themselves to be righteous, like they have no need of God and no need of His Son, the Lord Jesus, the Lord will scatter them. He will send the rich away. But for those who are hungry and those who know their need of the Lord, He will receive them and He will exalt those of humble estate. Well, what's the point of application for us before moving to the third and final point? Brothers and sisters, we should hate spiritual pride. We should hate spiritual pride. And we should eradicate it from our hearts as much as possible. And for anyone here who is outside of Christ, you're not asked to come to him with any pride, any achievement of your own. The Lord resists the spiritually proud. But we should then pursue, heartily pursue, the posture of humility before God because God is oriented toward the humble. He's receptive to the humble. For those who come naked and hungry, and broken down by their own sin and their need of a Savior, he invites them to the table. He says, come to me, and I'm going to fill your mouth with good things. I'm going to look upon the estate of humble sinners, and I'm going to exalt them and raise them up, and I'm going to give them everlasting life. Mary is celebrating God's power and mercy toward the humble, humble sinners who come to the Lord. Now consider with me thirdly and finally, 
We've seen God's power and mercy toward Mary, God's power and mercy toward the humble. Thirdly and finally, God's power and mercy toward Israel. I could have titled that heading God's power and mercy toward Abraham or even God's power and mercy toward us. But sticking with the language of the text, we'll do God's power and mercy toward Israel. Look with me at verse 54 and 55. This is how Mary concludes her song. This is like the climax of her song. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Okay, she's celebrating what God has done for her. The Lord's looked upon His humble servant. He's done mighty things for me. She celebrates this grace shown toward all those who fear the Lord, generation after generation. The Lord will scatter the proud, but He's going to receive the humble. Isn't it remarkable that the mind of the young Virgin Mary, in the midst of all that God is doing, all these events of personal significance to her and cosmic significance for the universe, her mind goes to Abraham. Does that seem like an odd ending to the song? Sort of an odd climax? Why should the mind of the Virgin Mary, this teenage girl, rest upon God's dealings with Abraham, we think 2,000 years before all of this ever happened? Remember the text I read at the beginning. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. What does Abraham have to do with Christmas? Could you answer that question? What does Abraham have to do with with Advent, with the birth of Jesus? 2,000 years before the events of Luke chapter 1, God appeared to Abraham. His name was Abram at that time. And God did what He does for a few other people in redemptive history. God enters into a covenant with Abram. He makes promises to Abram. And those promises are recorded in Genesis chapter 12. They're reiterated in some form or fashion again in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. When the promise is first made, when the covenant is first entered into between God and Abraham, we have it in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. You could just listen as I read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Another account of this promise is in Genesis 22 after Abraham expresses a willingness to offer up Isaac, is even prepared to offer up his son Isaac. There the Lord again reiterates his promise to Abraham. Genesis 22 verse 17, the Lord says, Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, there's, there's so much to talk about here, but let me just give a quick crash course 
in the covenant with Abraham. In the covenant with Abraham, there are three basic promises. God promises to Abraham land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. And in some form or fashion, these three promises are reiterated again and again in Abraham's narrative. First of all, he's promised land. You kids know the, 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 the stories surrounding Egypt and God's people in slavery there and all the talk about the promised land that has in view God's promise to Abraham. God promised to give certain land to Abraham, and indeed, Abraham and his descendants and those after him did inhabit the land. But see, that land was only a temporary sort of blessing, a sort of like initial fulfillment to the promise, and it could be taken away from them. It was just real estate in Mesopotamia, and it could be taken from them by stronger nations, as indeed it was some 1,500 years after Abraham. But when we read in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, we call that passage, as it's retelling the story of Abraham and his faith, it acknowledges very explicitly, very clearly there, that even then, in those days, Abraham knew he was waiting for a greater fulfillment of this promise. It says there he was waiting for a heavenly country. He was anticipating a city that God would give to his people, a city whose builder and maker is God. Yes, Abraham enjoyed the land, that land there in Mesopotamia, but he recognized this is not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. The meek will inherit the earth. God's people will be given a heavenly country, and he, he looked for it. He saw it afar off, the writer to Hebrews says. That's the first promise, partial fulfillment in the Old Testament, full fulfillment in the New Covenant. We will inherit the earth. Land, seed. Well, who's the promised seed, the promised offspring? Well, God does say that Isaac is the promised seed in some sense. There's an initial fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. God gives to Abraham and Sarah in their old age a son, Isaac, and he's said to be the child of promise. But then we learn in the New Testament very explicitly in Galatians chapter 3 that the Abrahamic promise anticipated a larger fulfillment that went far beyond Isaac. Who, who, who is the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised son of Abraham? We're told in Galatians 3, it's Jesus. He is the offspring of Abraham that's going to come, and it's through him that God will accomplish his redemptive plans and purposes. Initial fulfillment in the Old Testament in Isaac, fuller fulfillment in the person of Jesus in the new covenant. So land, seed, and what's the third? Blessing, right? In your offspring, singular, in your seed, in your son, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. How many nations are represented in this room this morning? All the nations of the world will be blessed. This might have had some small fulfillment in the Old Testament, but only as individual members of the nations converted and became Jews, were circumcised and adopted the Jewish customs and entered into the ethnic family of the people of Israel. But of course, we learn again in Galatians 3 and a number of other passages, Jesus, of course, is that offspring, that promised son. And it is through Jesus that all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's through Jesus that the Gentiles will be brought in. It's through Jesus that the gospel will be, pro be proclaimed among the nations, among all the families and peoples of the world. Jesus is that son of Abraham who would come, and through him, all the nations, all the families of the world would have deliverance and blessing and salvation. Partial fulfillment in the Old Testament, full fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, 
The Old Testament saints didn't comprehend all of this. We comprehend this all now with far greater clarity than they did. But they still anticipated that the promises had not been fully fulfilled under the Old Testament. By the time you get to Jesus' day, there are lots of people wondering, what has happened to the promise to Abraham? Is God going to keep His promise? Has God lied to us? Has God forgotten about the promises that He made to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now, the Old Testament writers don't meditate on the promise to Abraham nearly as much as they meditate on the promise to David, which we considered last week. Psalm 89, what does the Lord say? I will not lie to David. I will keep my covenant to David and his house forever. Just dozens and dozens and dozens of passages. There aren't as many on the covenant with Abraham, but there are still several. One such text is Psalm 105. You can just listen as I read. Hear the psalmist is anticipating some larger fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. In Psalm 105, we read this in verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. Like He hasn't forgotten what He promised. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that He made with Abraham, His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. God will not lie to David. God will not lie to Abraham. He will not lie to Jacob because God never lies. God always keeps His promises. Another passage, a very well-known passage, at least it was to Jews in Jesus' day, that highlights the significance of the promise to Abraham is in Micah chapter 7. Micah is one of the minor prophets, and Micah doesn't have a lot of good news for Israel. Micah prophesies on the eve of the coming judgment of God. God is going to judge Israel, punish Israel, and bring Israel into a place of exile. That song we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that puts us in the posture of Israel awaiting the promises of God. Imagining God's people in exile, wondering what's happened to the promise, waiting, seeking, looking for God to fulfill what His Word has spoken. Micah is prophesying before the exile takes place, and and he says that Assyria is going to come, and you're going to be brought into captivity under Assyria. God's going to punish you for your idolatry, for your spiritual adultery. He's going to punish you, and He's going to take everything away from you. And you will come into captivity under Assyria. And then he anticipates the Babylonian captivity, which will come after the captivity to Assyria. It's not an encouraging book in many ways. But you get to chapter 7, and you're sort of at this place, like, what happened to God's promises? Like, where's the land? Where's the seed? Where's the blessing? I thought all the nations of the world will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham, and here we are being subjugated by the nations of the world. What happened to God's promise? Is God a liar? Is God going to do what He has sworn to our fathers to Abraham ages ago? And this is how Micah 7 ends. Verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. Or as Mary would say 700 years after this prophecy is given, he will remember mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. 
You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And 700 years later, here's the teenage girl Mary, and she's singing her song. And what does she say? God has remembered his mercy of old. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. The son of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham has come. Mary is saying, God is faithful. And you can hear the echo of Elizabeth's benediction. Blessed is the one who believed there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken to her. What's the message of Advent? What's the message of Christmas? Where does Mary land her song, her meditation here? If you need proof that God is merciful, you need to look no further than the birth of the Lord Jesus. The incarnation, the announcement of the incarnation is that God has chosen mercy. And listen to a sin-sick world, to people who dwell in darkness, to people who are rebels against God, to people who deserve God's wrath and an everlasting hell for the deeds that they have committed in the body, there is no greater news than that God has purposed to be merciful. This is the announcement of Christmas. God has remembered his mercy, which he swore to our fathers, even to Abraham in ancient days. This is so crucial because this is our fundamental need. Mankind lost in sin in rebellion against God under the weight of our countless transgressions against God. What mankind needs more than anything else is mercy. My friend, you need the mercy of God toward your sins more than you need anything else in the world. More than you need to have your psychological needs met. More than you need to have a spouse to complete you or to have happy children. More than you need to have enough money in your retirement. More than you need to be delivered from the coronavirus. More than you need to have the proper political candidate that you can follow. What we need, what lost and sinful, sin-sick souls need is to know that God is merciful and that he is willing to look on the humble and contrite in spirit. Listen to Mary this morning as she sings her song, as she testifies of the grace and power and mercy of God toward her. She's inviting us. He's saying God will look upon the humble. God will keep his promise. God will remember mercy. And for every sinner here, the promise is this, there's mercy for you. If you will turn from your sins and embrace by faith the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God born of the Virgin Mary. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are slow to chide and swift to bless. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Who could have faulted you? Who could have blamed you? Who could have been your accuser if you rejected all of us, scattered the proud, vanquished and destroyed the sinners of this world? But you have chosen in your grace and in your love to be merciful. How we thank you. Because we know in the depths of our hearts this is what we need.
What we need as sinners is the grace of Almighty God. We need the mercy of Almighty God. We need you to look on our humble estate and have compassion on us. So please come. We're humility of spirit in each one of us. And may we all experience the blessing of being poor in spirit, of coming as humble and contrite sinners, broken in heart, coming to the one who can show us mercy and revive us and give us life in Jesus. Please, Lord, work this in all of our hearts. We know that you resist the proud, but how we bless you that you give grace to the humble. You don't despise the lowly in spirit. You don't kick the sinner away from your table. You invite us in, and you receive us through the merits of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Give us faith to believe this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.